Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from Gilbert, Arizona. We're excited to have a new guest in the sh- on the show today. Obviously, if this is the first time you're listening to us, you may not know exactly what we do here. There is an intro, obviously, before I come on live that tells you a little bit about it. But we've been doing this for a little over three years. And essentially, what we do is interview a new business owner every single week and let them tell their story or one of their uh, key members of their executive team, which is what we've got today. So we've got today Jim Birch from OMB Beer coming to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And Jim, I don't know if you remember this, but in our prequel call, I was uh, I was wondering if it, if it, if you happened to be the Jim Birch that I played high school baseball with, but uh, <laughs> you definitely are not. <laughs> yep. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> well, Jim, so... You know, before we jump into the to the business side of things, and obviously you guys have a really cool background uh, as a company, but your background itself is is interesting as well. So why don't you kind of just give us the the highlight or the the Cliff Notes version of of who Jim Birch is, where you grew up, what your family life is like when you were growing up, what it's like now, that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so I'm uh, I'm living in Charlotte, North Carolina right now, working for the old Mecklenburg Brewery, as you said, and I've been here for about a little over a year. Um, prior to working with Old Mech, um, I was in New Orleans for three years, actually, in a role that was um, building and restarting the Dixie Brewery, um, which was really interesting time. And before that, I was working for a brewery in North Carolina here called Catawba. But prior to that, for the first uh, 12 or 13 years of my career, I was actually working in New York and in London um, and a little bit in Hong Kong for a company called Moody's. Um, and so that was a very different job than what I'm currently doing. Brewing and uh, the craft beer industry was always kind of a hobby of mine. So I made the jump about eight years ago and have never looked back. And prior to that, um, from New Jersey originally, um, although I didn't play baseball, I played a lot of soccer and some golf. Um, grew up just outside of New York City, uh, went to St. Peter's Prep. And um, yeah, I haven't been back to New Jersey recently, but um, I do sort of like the Southern weather, uh, except when it's uh, hot like it is over the past couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get, I'd imagine it's probably heating up actually. Uh, I didn't really want to hear that because I'm leaving on Thursday afternoon to go to Orlando, spend the weekend in Cocoa Beach. And then uh, I'm speaking at a conference next week in, in Orlando. So um, hopefully it's not too too hot at the beach. Hopefully we get some nice, you know, cool breeze at the beach and, and have an enjoyable weekend as a family there. Sure. So um, let me tell the, the audience a little bit about Old Mecklenburg Brewery, and then we'll kind of jump in a little bit more. So, you know, the, the write-up here, founded in 2009 in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'll have you fill in the blanks on ownership and kind of your role and how you came in there. But um, its signature beers include Copper Alt Beer or Alt Beer. Yep, it's a Dusseldorf style alt beer. Okay. Captain Jack Pilsner and Hornets Hess Hefeweizen with seasonal offerings such as Mechtoberfest, an award winning Mars and Lager, 
At OMB, there's an unwavering commitment to fresh, pure, premium quality beer, and it isn't just a slogan. It's an integral part of who we are. OMB strictly follows the world's oldest beer purity law, the renowned German Reinheitsgebot, which states, beer sh- which states that beer should only contain four ingredients, water, malt, hops, and yeast. The OMB brewing practice never compromises on quality, foregoing cheap ingredients, artificial flavors, and added colors. If you want to brew world-class beer, you've got to use the best ingredients and sweat the details. OMB's mission is to bring the Carolinas the freshest beer possible. So I, I love that write up. Uh, I'm I'm not a beer drinker. I actually, you know, it, I've I have drank beer before, but it's it. I don't uh, I don't drink at all anymore. Um, just don't. It's just you know not not one of the things that I do. But um, I do applaud you for obviously sticking with the four ingredients, making it pure, make it you know doing everything that you guys can to to make it fresh. But you know I, I think that sometimes whether it's in brewing or food or whatever in our country, we tend to use these artificial ingredients that kind of make it easier to provide good taste, preservatives, all those sorts of things, but they're not necessarily good for us as the consumer. So just kind of give us your background or your your feedback on that, I should say. Yeah, I mean, totally agree. And, um, you know, following the the four ingredient rule, is actually a lot harder in many instances. So it causes you, you know, we we're trying to create very consistent, very drinkable beers. And um, we're also trying to experiment and make sure that we stay relevant within the craft beer industry, which is changing so quickly. And so, you know, when we come out with a beer, um, we have the constraints of just the four ingredients. So we have to find flavors that exist in the hops, the malt and the yeast in order to um, compensate for what otherwise you know, we would use fruit or we would do something like a, you know, what a Belgian brewery might do with coriander or orange peel. And a good example is we just came out with a Belgian wit style beer. Um, you know, and if you've ever had a Blue Moon or a Hogarten or one of those, you know, you, you have kind of these fruity citrusy notes to it. And, you know, we um, we used some hops um, that we found that give that same kind of floralness. And um, it's just neat. You know, I think a lot of people um, recognize that, the Germans have been brewing uh, great beers for over 500 years. And when the owner of OMB decided to open here, uh, that was a critical component for him in order to have the authenticity of what you'd experience if you went to Germany. Yeah. So since you mentioned the owner, why don't you give us a little bit of background on how he got his start, why he why he decided to launch, you know, Old Mecklenburg Brewery, and, and maybe you even have the background on where, you know, that name came from and, and uh, uh, and what uh, what it means to him and to to the company. Sure. Um, yeah, John Marino's the owner. Um, he founded OMB in 2009, as you mentioned. It was actually kind of a second career for him. The first part of his career, um, spent some time in Germany working in uh, water treatment, which uh, isn't too surprising because water is so important in the beer um, brewing process. But the, his story is that he, uh, he had settled in Charlotte in the early 2000s, um, you know, he had the opportunity to switch careers and took some time off and drove around the country and realized at some point towards the latter part of his trip that uh, there were no breweries in Charlotte. And if you've ever been to North Carolina, that's a little surprising because Western North Carolina is essentially kind of like the Oregon of the Northeast, uh, Sierra Nevada, New Belgium, you name it. These breweries have opened these massive East Coast facilities uh, up in the mountains. But 
somehow in Charlotte, there was um, there was only two breweries at the time in 2009, only 14 years ago. Um, we are now the oldest operating. Those two have since gone, but there's over 65, I believe, breweries that have opened in the last 14 years since we opened. Um, and North Carolina is sort of a, a pretty exciting place for craft beer in general. Um, so the, your your other question as far as Mecklenburg, old Mecklenburg, um, it's actually the county that Charlotte is based out of, Mecklenburg County. Um, and kind of old Mech as the name, we've been in the process of a, a brand um, refresh where we're using less old Mecklenburg, which really isn't as relevant to people outside of Charlotte and um, more OMB as we're now available statewide in North Carolina. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it makes sense. And it's it's funny you mentioned the water treatment thing. I, it just brought to mind. I've got a neighbor who's in the water treatment business and and he he tells people he's a turd farmer, like literally that's, <laughs> that's what he says he does. So it's it's just funny. But you're right. I mean, the having the water be pure and, you know, all that kind of stuff is is so important, obviously, in, in brewing beer. So, yep. Let's talk a little bit more about your background, Jim. So you you mentioned this kind of in the in the introduction, but you know you you didn't you didn't expound a whole lot. You just said I, you know I worked around the around the world, Hong Kong, London, New York for Moody's. Not everybody knows what Moody's is. I know what Moody's is, um, but tell us a little bit about what what it is that you did for them because as far as I'm concerned, it's about as far from brewing beer as you could be. So. <laughs> It, it definitely is. So um, I guess I'll, I'll go all the way back to college. So I spent, uh, I graduated from University of Richmond with an economics degree, and I had the opportunity to spend a year in London um, studying economics at the London School of Economics my junior year. Um, and a big part of that was managerial economics. So my background was really um, finance um, with economic theory and some math. Right out of college uh, in 2002 was a, kind of a, a tough period just following the dot-com bubble. Um, so I luckily parlayed my summer internship into a full-time job, which was working for Liz Claiborne. Um, and that was one of the larger um, department store women's wear manufacturers at the time, which was actually a roll-up company of 20-plus uh, brands. And so for about a year and a half, I had the opportunity to work with a group of people as we Purchased, um, you know, DKNY jeans and uh, Lucky Brand jeans and all these other different brands that people may not have even known that Liz Claiborne owned at that point. So a great opportunity. Followed um, one of my colleagues to Coty, which is a over 100-year-old um, French-owned private manufacturer of perfumes and things like that for men and women. Um, and during that two-year period, we acquired um, a couple different brands, one of which uh, required us to issue a fairly substantial amount of um, debt, which was about a $900 million bond. And I'm 24 years old and working on uh, the details of the PowerPoint to pitch to the rating agencies. And that was um, my first interaction with Moody's and S&P. 
And long story short, I got to know the the Moody's guys pretty well. Um, and uh, that turned into my third job um, by the time I was 25. At Moody's, I spent time in a bunch of different departments in uh, corporate finance and in financial institutions and sovereign risk and um, worked at Moody's throughout the credit crisis, which was an incredibly interesting time. Um, especially in my career, I learned a lot, worked a lot, and had the opportunity to do a bunch of different things post-crisis, one of which was to move to London and to uh, help to establish the regulatory framework required by Dodd-Frank and the equivalent uh, Dodd-Frank legislation throughout the world. Um, so that uh, left me in uh, London for two years with a, a stint in Hong Kong. And during that whole time period, my craft beer interest and home brewing continued to grow. I was actually bottling beer for some craft breweries on Saturdays and Sundays, and my wife were traveling whenever we could. And we kept going to breweries. And so fast forward to moving back to New York in 2014, uh, I got promoted. Um, I absolutely loved my career at Moody's. And uh, I told my boss in February of 2015, I think I want to go work for a brewery in North Carolina and uh, explore this hobby. And she was incredible, flexible and said, uh, go for it and we'll hold your job for you know, about a year if this is the worst decision you ever made. So there was no reason not to do it. Uh, we packed up, moved to Asheville, North Carolina in July of 2015. And the rest kind of history. Yeah, I think I think it's a cool story. I think that, you know, the big thing that you kind of take away from that is that, you know, you, you can have a great career, you can study certain things, you can be very smart and, and learn how to do different jobs and be involved in great transactions, finance or otherwise. But sometimes you just don't find it as fulfilling as you think you would. And there's something that is that you're a little bit more passionate about. And if you can marry the skills and education that you have from the other part of your life to something that you're more passionate about and you have that opportunity to do that. So I, I think entrepreneurs do that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Now you didn't jump out and start your own brewery, but you, you jumped out of this world that you'd known and, and uh, worked in forever to go completely outside of that world and, and go after something that you were passionate about. And I applaud you for that. Thanks. You know, the, the plan was always actually to start our own brewery, my wife and I had talked about. It. And so this was kind of the uh, let's make sure that I know what I'm doing and how to do it and, you know, really learn the industry. And at some point in that evolution of my jobs over the last eight years in this industry, I realized I don't think I really want to start a brewery anymore. I, I enjoy running them and I enjoy working uh, in established uh, businesses. But the you know, there was there was a time period where opening a new brewery and getting the financing and getting scale very quickly um, may have passed, at least in the short term. Yeah, I mean, that leads me to my next question, actually, because you you mentioned when you when you joined OMB, you know, there were only two breweries in that area. Now there are, I think you said, 65. And, you know, since you got involved in this business, you know, in 2015, it's I mean, we see breweries popping up throughout our country everywhere. So I'm, I know that it's just been exploding, but you feel like that growth is coming to an end and that the next few years are going to be more competitive and maybe there will be some consolidation. And, you know, th those are my words, not yours. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about what you kind of see for the next five to 10 years in the, in the craft beer industry in our country. Yeah. Um, I'll, 
I'll say one thing. I mean, just in the last eight years that I've been in the industry, um, the number of changes, the consolidations um, has been incredible to watch. And I think for, for folks that have been watching the craft beer industry closely, even recently, you may have heard about, you know, Constellation, which bought several craft beer brands, you know, within the last four years, now divesting and selling back to the owners. A uh, hundred or a billion dollar deal to purchase Ballast Point was essentially almost written off completely. Um, and then Anheuser-Busch and some of the larger well-known manufacturers kind of acquiring craft portfolios. That was just starting when I entered the industry, too. Um, I think that, uh, you know, craft beer, like any other business, um, was growing at double-digit pace. And so that uh, led a lot of people to um, get involved. And it's a fun industry. You know, you're you're making a product that people enjoy uh, generally in a very social way. And so that's that's always been part of the driver for me. Um, it has become more competitive. It has, um, you know, alcohol in the United States is a kind of a, an interesting industry, at least from a distribution perspective. Um, there've been a lot of changes in state laws that have relaxed what can be done at retail establishments. So you see a lot of these breweries really opening and only servicing a crowd that comes to their bar. Um, whereas historically, um, breweries were mostly manufacturers and they might've had a small tasting room, but that wasn't the the vast majority of their revenue. So that's completely flip-flopped. OMB is uh, in the middle. So, you know, when we started out, we had a small tasting room and that has since become a, a fairly substantial beer garden that is a, a big driver of our revenue with a restaurant. Um, but we also have a distribution arm too, which is a huge part of the business. Um, and we, we tend to think that the two um, can both benefit each other. P folks that come in on the weekends that have a beer um, and enjoy their their experience, that's great marketing from us. It happens to be profitable too. And they go back out to the grocery store, to their local bar, and they purchase the product. Um, the outlook recently from my perspective is that um, some breweries are uh probably overextended from a financing perspective if any of their um if any of their notes or bank loans are tied to variable interest rates we're seeing that already um and then we're also seeing in the grocery channel especially and partially due to the nature of uh distribution rights which is a state by state issue uh it's more competitive and the ability to get your product on the shelf in a grocery store requires advanced planning. It requires close coordination with the large national grocery chains or even the regional ones. And it requires a close partnership with the wholesalers uh, who generally are affiliated with one of the larger brands that people know well, like Budweiser or Molson Coors or Constellation or something like that. So um, in order to do that well, you have to have some scale. You need to have a business that has you know, a sales team um, and a marketing function and the ability to approach these wholesalers, even from a small company perspective, in a way that uh, you can you can kind of like guarantee that you'll be a reliable partner and that they can put you into the grocery store sets and do things like that. So we're seeing that right now. And there is a lot of breweries that are doing it really well with very limited resources. Um, and I think that, you know, Based on what happens in the next two, three years, um, seeing if prices for raw materials uh, come back come back down to where they were, I think that will determine just kind of how many breweries are going to be around for the long term. I think it'll be a lot. Um, 
And it's hard to say whether or not the overall trend of new brewery openings will slow down or even decrease. But I do think that the industry is going to look different in five years from than what it looks like today. Yeah. So the variable interest rates, right? SBA loans are typically variable interest rates. And so if there's been acquisitions or they've used that to finance growth or whatever. So that one's totally makes sense to me today with what's, you know, what's going on in interest rates in, in our country and inflation, et cetera. But um, the acquisitions and then divestitures back to the same owners kind of fill us in why, why you think that happened, or, you know, maybe it's public knowledge in your industry, why, why it did happen. Um, yeah, sure. I, I think there was a bit of euphoria starting in 2016 or so as craft breweries, you know, brand new startups were doubling, tripling both top and bottom line. I think that some of the, old line manufacturers um, needed to catch up. And the quickest way to do that was, you know, not to start their own in-house craft brands. It was to acquire brands that had already established, you know, a following and maybe had a retail location. So the best example, you know, is uh, Wicked Weed, which was acquired by Anheuser-Busch, um, Devil's Backbone, Blue uh, Point in Long Island. So they, all of these brands um, for, whatever they were doing um, were probably ahead of the pack and their peers on a regional basis. And so the, the goal was to take advantage of their brand recognition and then to use the scale and the logistics and the production capacity that already existed to make them even bigger as quickly as possible. Um, and in some cases that worked, worked perfectly. And in a lot of cases it hasn't. And so I think that these large companies have spent a lot of time and focus on the craft beer portfolio and it's probably been a slight distraction from what they do from a core perspective. And so I think the divestiture is more about not, not a um, lower expected future growth expectations, as well as just honing in on where they should be spending their time given the potential volume of, of individual craft players versus, you know, their, their larger brands in house. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, the core business, right, of a company like Anheuser-Busch, and they've got a lot of brands, right? But uh, I mean, if you just think of Budweiser, for example, right, the, the person who drinks Budweiser is probably not the same person that's going to go and have a craft beer on the weekends. They're, they're just, there's a different uh, desire for what it is that you're looking for from a beer standpoint. Is that fair? Yeah, a hundred percent. And there's, there's an awful lot of loyalty too amongst beer drinkers. So, you know, if you are a Budweiser or a Coors Light drinker or whatever it might be, uh, it's very difficult to change someone's habit from a brand that, you know, they have a long history supporting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes sense. They got away from their core and realized it and ended up divesting back to the people who did it, did it well. They, they purchased the businesses for a reason, right? But it, it's just, you know, they turned it back over to those people who continue to do the things that, that they do well and, and will benefit from that, hopefully, in the long run. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. So your first stop in North Carolina is not your current stop. You know, you, you left North Carolina and, and went to New Orleans for a while and, and you worked for, um, it was Dixie. I know it's gone through a name change, so you can kind of fill us in on that, but it was essentially owned by the owners of the Saints and the Pelicans. And, and so 
you know, that period of time you say was integral to your experiences in consumer marketing that you've been able to apply now here at, at OMB. So kind of fill us in on, on what it is specifically that you learned there and, and why it was beneficial. And, and then you can explain the Dixie thing and the, and the rebrand as well. Sure. Um, and from someone who had only been to New Orleans for a bachelor party or two, I um, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. But uh, yeah, September 2018, I got a call from um, a headhunter or staffing agency, and they were looking for someone that could uh, assist a large beer company in reestablishing itself. And the very interesting part about the initial call I had was, and you don't need to worry about raising any capital. I was like, who is this person? Um <laughs> So I went through a couple of rounds, spoke with a lot of folks, um, and at some point in that process, realized that um, Mrs. Benson, who is the owner of the Saints and Pelicans, and her late husband, Tom Benson, they had um, purchased Dixie because they had been looking around New Orleans, and Mrs. Benson's very active philanthropically in New Orleans and has been for many years, and they were looking for investments that uh, were core to who New Orleans was. Uh, she was focused very much so and still is on creating jobs and on economic opportunity in parts of New Orleans that haven't really benefited post-Katrina uh, as, as much as some of the other areas have. And that whole process was interesting in and of itself, and the story was great. And then the, the history and the story of Dixie as a brand that was so iconic to New Orleans since 1907 and the ambitions that they had to bring this brand back, you know, in a category that was a little bit different than craft and what I had previously done. This is sort of a, this was going to be a, a mass market beer that we could ship to 50 states and potentially around the world for folks that were looking for Cajun Creole cuisine. And um, that really piqued my interest. And then on top of that was their, um, their ambition to build a state-of-the-art production facility that wound up being, you know, over $40 million with the capability to truly compete um, and to get back the share that Dixie had um, back in the 1950s or so. So that was incredibly interesting. Um, I got to meet with the entire team and um, Mrs. Benson's goal has been with her management team over the past 10 years to diversify outside of just the sports teams, um, which are the Saints and the Pelicans. And so there's an interest in car dealerships and a private equity firm and real estate investments and things like that. And the brewery was this first consumer um, product entrance that the, that that team had had. So that was um, part of my motivation. So we moved to New Orleans. And from day one, it was about sort of catching up to the plans that were already in place and the building site had been selected and making sure that that all came together on a schedule that was going to have us open in January of 2020. And so that first year was just really a sprint. It was a brand that was in the market because we were contract manufacturing it. But part of the logistics would be going from that contract manufacturing to in-house manufacturing all the while opening a 15-acre site, hiring 50-plus workers, training them, um, and just getting started all over again. So it was a really, really interesting time there. Yeah. So you get that all set up and, and going, and then obviously the, the pandemic hits just a few months later. So there will be obviously some transitions that you had to go through and some adjustments that you had to make. And then the name Dixie is not... Uh, a word that is is seen well, you know, specifically over the last few years to where it's everybody's kind of honed in on 
these different words and, and so forth that we use that have a negative connotation specifically to specific races. And so, mm -hmm. you know, speak to us about the pandemic portion and then speak to us about the rebrand and, and why that was important to, to the organization. Yeah, the, the pandemic hit us. So we opened January 20th, I believe, January 21st of 2020. Pandemic was uh, just becoming news at that point. So we had about eight weeks of operations. Um, that was after this major sprint. And we shut down just like a lot of businesses um, early on, not knowing um, what was safe and what wasn't. So we moved to this model of uh, to-go beers and then slowly kind of gradually opened and went through all the peaks and troughs that a lot of small businesses felt throughout that period. Um, luckily, we had this big outside space, so we did get to use the beer garden area um, a, a little bit. Um, also, during that time, like you alluded to, there was um, sort of critical conversations about race and about, um, you know, just making sure that um, the Dixie brand, where some research had been done prior to purchasing it, that had universally said, um, you know, the brand is iconic and there was very few negative associations with it and that was actually something that i had asked when i first started too unfortunately you know in hindsight um a lot more feedback came into us during this period and it was feedback that was uh more geographically diverse where we had we had plans to go into 50 states and markets all over the country but we had really only solicited feedback from folks within the new orleans dma in louisiana and not having the history of what Dixie, the beer brand, meant there um, was very difficult to tell that story and to say, no, actually, you know, Dixie, as it was coined for the brewery, refers to the French $10 bill, the French Dice, which was um, a note that exchange, was exchanged in New Orleans for 100 years. But you, you can't really tell that story. And more so, what most people associate the name Dixie with um, has some negative connotations and it, it wasn't what we stood for. Um, it was a distraction from making a product that was supposed to bring people together. Um, and it was very, uh, it was frustrating for a lot of us because we knew the truth, but if you can't tell the story and if your brand is offensive to people who, um, you know, really kind of are looking for, uh, they want to be customers, then we thought, okay, well, we may be permanently impairing what could be otherwise be a very successful business with these long-term plans to hire hundreds of workers here. So um, that decision was made in uh, late June to retire the Dixie brand name and to replace it with something uh, that wound up being Faubourg, which was French for neighborhood. And the evolution of that process essentially kicked off the day that we announced the retirement of the Dixie brand name all the way through for about a year until Foberg um, rolled out. And then, you know, subsequently, Foberg is a, a different brand than what Dixie was, even though it's produced and made under the same roof. It's uh, it's more of a craft brand, um, very local. Foberg obviously is something that if you're in New Orleans and you have a little bit of a French background, then you kind of know what it means. But um, that for us was about making this truly a very New Orleans brand. Um, and then growing it back into distribution. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mean, I think the experiences that you picked up along the way there, I mean, even prior to that, but being in New Orleans and being involved with, you know, Foberg, Dixie and and working with Mrs. Benson, the, the owner of the Saints and the Pelicans, it's 
large brand, you would think, you know, kind of a blank check. I mean, you were told you wouldn't need to, to raise capital. She's got access to capital, whether it's her own capital or through bank lines and whatever. And so she, you know, there's this reputation. So one could say that's kind of a dream job, right? I mean, you <laughs> really were able to do all the things that you could hope to do in, in the brewery industry or the, you know, the beer industry, but then you leave and you go to OMB. So kind of tell us about how that came, how that came about. And then we'll unpack, you know, what you've done since you've been there and what the future holds. Yeah. Um, I, I have nothing bad to say about new Orleans. Um, the culture is incredible. The, um, the heat and the, uh, summer temperatures are incredible. Uh, <laughs> the parades and everything about the city is really unique. And so if you haven't been there, I recommend that you do go there. Um, at the same time, um, the transition from Dixie to Faubourg was, um, a massive business change. And so it, it changed the direction and it changed the, uh, overall responsibilities and what I'm looking for um, when I left Moody's, which was to make and put a product on the shelf um, that I could say, you know, that's mine. And I know what, how I contributed to it. That was very elusive at Moody's, you know, rating bonds. Um, most people have not heard of Moody's and to rate a bond is not really to create a product. It's, you know, to attach an opinion to something. So that tangible, um, aspect of working in the beer industry has always been really important to me. And Foberg, you know, because of the scale and the ambition that we had, and we have this massive state-of-the-art facility, you have to keep it going. And so the way that we did that was contract manufacturing, which again, gave uh, just incredible perspective on another part of the beer business, which was make other people's beer kind of like hide behind a curtain because no one really wants to admit that they're not making their own product, but it's an important part of the industry um, that a lot of people use for in order to get scale and to um, get big very quickly. And I think I can say that, you know, uh, one of the early contracts that we uh, signed was Troy Aikman. So we were making the Elite Eight Lager uh, right out of the gate for him. They debuted, I believe, in January of last year. Incredible beer, uh, an incredible process working with their team. And he was actively involved in the tasting and we met him several times. And then we got to make this beer for um, for their launch and they've subsequently grown even larger. And I think they've moved on to an even bigger facility. So it was those experiences and working with um, Master P, who is a well-known rapper from New Orleans. That's another um person I never thought I'd meet in my life. And I was uh, drinking test batches of Corona light with Master P one day, thinking to myself, wow, I don't think it gets any better than this. Uh, <laughs> so I, uh, I I thoroughly enjoyed every aspect of it. But again, that not being able to put our our brand on the product and, and Foberg having a different ambition than what Dixie had caused me to think um, that maybe I want to um, continue moving along in the industry. And it was really right about that point that I got a call from um, John and someone who was doing a search here. And the, the long story short is that John has been running this business basically by himself with the management team for 13 years. And um, we have ambitions to open three new locations and his interest and expertise is on the visionary side. Um, he's a great manager, but doesn't really prefer it as much as, you know, the day to day. And so he has been following um, in his EO group, a process called EOS um, and in reading traction and the entrepreneurial operating system. 
um, I started learning a little bit about it and we talked and he explained kind of his, you know, his approach, which is like, he wants someone to come in and manage the business and to take us to the next level and, and look at uh, the business that's been around for 14 years, see what the strengths and weaknesses are, um, put in place professional um, hiring practices so that we continue to scale what we're doing um, and stay true to what OMB is, especially from a beer and a German inspired heritage. And that sounded just incredible to me. And I've been a customer for OMB when we were living in Charlotte previously. So um, the opportunity to move back closer, uh, to take on this role and to really work side by side with someone who is so invested in the business themselves and who has this approach, which is, you know, he enjoys um, running this business. He enjoys owning the business. He wants to continue, um, you know, working and being involved and to be kind of his his number two was um, a, another new experience for me, which I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying right now. Yeah, no, I, th I think that it's a great way to look at it. He obviously, you know, had some help along the way with his with his uh, EO group and, and being introduced to EOS. And, you know, there's uh, most people listening. Well, I shouldn't say most. Many people listening have, have heard of EOS, have probably read the book Traction. They understand that what you just explained is that, you know, he's acting as the visionary, you're acting as the integrator. Um, and so, you know, the, both of those roles, they, they can be fulfilled by the same person. And that's the way that John was doing it before you got there. But it becomes way more powerful if you can have a, a delineation of those duties, right? And the visionary does just act as the visionary and where are we taking this business? And then Jim acting as the integrator says, okay, let's take your vision and make it reality and kind of turn it into what you what you envision over the next, you know, decade or whatever the case may be. And so how long has it been that you guys have been operating in that, in that capacity and what's it been like for you? We've been doing this since I started in February last year. So I think we're going on 15 months. Um, it is literally a, a, a management style and a management framework that I, I wish I had read about a decade ago. Um, we have we have a great team to start off with. I mean, I, I got to join a team that was already pretty highly functioning, um, very independent, mature. Um, and so kind of like bringing those folks together um, wasn't very difficult at all. And now we've started to hire and continue to expand um, our employees as we're growing. I think that, um, you know, EOS is really uh, the traction as a as a concept is intuitive after you read it. It wasn't intuitive to me prior. And so, you know, starting out and then, you know, having the weekly meetings and establishing, you know, the small rocks and making incremental progress on a quarterly basis, that once you start doing it, it's kind of like, how did you ever not do this in my mind? Um, and we're very much there. So we meet as a team on a weekly basis. The, that meeting time is sacred. We get to know each other um, aside from just being colleagues. We hear about people's um, you know, personal lives and what how their kids did at the soccer games last weekend. And so I think that helps us work um, more efficiently, more human with each other. And then we go through the KPIs and we talk about the business and we solve the major issues as a team, as opposed to me or John, you know, coming up with solutions and just trying to tell everyone the way it's going to be done. You get a whole lot more buy-in. 
and honestly, you get a lot more ideas than just one or two people, you know, trying to impose their will on the business. So uh, I, there was literally not a negative aspect of um, the, the the entrepreneurial operating system model from my perspective. It requires um, some time up front and it requires kind of that weekly ongoing cadence, but it's been uh, a fantastic experience for me. Yeah, when when we when we talk to our clients about the system, we we kind of describe it like a hockey stick, right? So you may see a little bit of a dip because you're you're getting used to it. There's upfront investment of time to get you know to get it going, but then once you get it and everybody hits their stride, you see things really just kind of take off like a lightning bolt, and and it's uh, it's incredible to see what that system or different versions of that system can do for different businesses. And, and obviously you guys are still, you know, relatively new, but you're seeing the benefits of it already. So what does the future hold? What, 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 you know, when John reached out with the headhunter, it was to add three more locations. So where are we in that, in that, you know, measuring stick, so to speak. And then where do we go over the next 10 years? Sure. The, um, the the first 12 months um was a lot of listening and a lot of learning about the business and a lot of understanding what John's vision was for it, which I, I knew starting, but I I refined it and kind of really got into where he thinks the business should go and, and made sure that my expectations um and what I could do aligned and they do very much. So the first thing we did was look at our packaging and look at the brand. And that resulted in a six-month project where we refreshed the brand. We put um, a simpler logo, uh, like I mentioned. We refer to ourselves as OMB. We updated um, our brand standards. We looked at how we communicate with our wholesalers, which was a new method of doing business because we were previously self-distributed pretty much right up to the point when I started. Um, and we looked at our people and made sure that we had the right people in the right seats, uh, which by and large we did, although we, we definitely had some turnover, like I think a lot of people did over the past year. And where that's left us is that we're, we're really well positioned for growth in a, in a craft beer market that's currently declining, at least in Charlotte, you know, we're up double digits this year. And so I think that all of the work that was done last year to prepare the brand for the next decade we're just starting to see. I very much agree with the hockey stick analogy, especially from a brand um, refresh perspective too, where initially there's a little bit of, is that OMB? Did something change? You know, Potentially even your core customers are wondering what's going on. And then as you continue and you're consistent, we're starting to see that like, well, I actually like the packaging. The old one kind of felt old. And I, I really like the new IPA that you guys have done. You know, you're listening to the customer. It's 50% of um, the, the craft beer market here. And so we're getting all that feedback and we're generating a lot of um, earned media too. Just recently we announced with the airport here in Charlotte that we're going to open a huge beer garden. It's going to be 4,500 square feet. So, and it's right across from the Lufthansa gate that arrives with a daily flight from Munich every day. So couldn't really have that positioned any better. Um, and so I think that, you know, we are literally eight months away from the opening of our first uh, of our second location, which is going to be in Ballantyne. It's about eight miles South of us. It's a huge beer garden with a, a two floor, uh, 14,000 square foot building, restaurant, brewery, uh, not brewery, sorry, restaurant and tap room. Um, and so a lot of the work recently has been preparing for that. And the bulk of 
Well, what we're going to be doing from a hiring and training perspective, we're just preparing behind the scenes right now. So there's a lot of um, preparation work for getting the right people in place and then the massive hiring plan. We have 140 current employees right now. This time next year, we're probably going to have close to 300. And then 18 months later, after the Ballantyne opening, we're going to move on to opening another similar location in Mount Holly, which is on the north side of Charlotte. Um, again, probably 100 plus employees. And then as we get our feet, and I think as we learn from each location opening, the last location will be Cornelius, which is another 18 months from then. So over the next decade, you know, it's it's pretty much an opening every 18 to 24 months. Um, and the goal is to is to own the home market of Charlotte. We don't want to go far and wide. We don't think that you can ship beer to 50 states um, and be viable in a craft beer Um perspective like we are shipping's expensive logistics and sales are tough but we do want to own north and south carolina and we want to make sure that charlotte where we started is our strongest and largest market and that's the investment that we're making which i think is um is an investment i see other breweries doing and i think we're kind of on the the leading edge of that too right now gotcha so you're opening these you know these tap rooms these beer gardens these you know restaurants etc um, but distribution is still a part of your strategy, mainly in North Carolina and South Carolina. Maybe it expands beyond that. You can, you know, you can speak to that. But um, what percentage of the business today is made up from distribution as opposed to your tap rooms, right? And what do you think it's going to be or want it to be over the next decade? I'd say right now, um, you know, our retail operations, which includes a fairly substantial private event business, is more than 50 percent of the total. Um, and, you know, in the long run, as we open more retail locations, it's obviously going to grow. I, I think that we still want our wholesale business to be a, a big contributor um, because that's what attracts new customers. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and some respects is like you see it in the store then you want to go visit the location if you visit the location you're going to buy it in the store so i think like around 25 to 30 percent of the business could be in wholesale in the long run um and there's an enormous amount of market share um that's out there i mean craft beer is less than eight percent of the total uh dollars spent on beer um and even less from a volume perspective so we think that a market like Charlotte, which is growing very quickly, um, people are moving here. It's a younger market too. It's a beer. It's a the, the clientele is essentially beer drinkers and young families and things like that. We think that you know it can double or even triple from a market share perspective over the next decade. Yeah. So the growth the growth plan, um, you know, there's different ways to grow. You can grow organically. Right. Which it sounds like that's what you're doing, but maybe not. Right. I mean, the question could be, are you taking over somebody else's brewery that cost of capital got too high or they didn't control their expenses or they, you know, they had problems that that they didn't foresee and you're taking over their their site. Right. And rebranding it. I mean, what what are, what are you seeing? What do you think it's going to be? Um, and are you guys nimble enough to where you think, well, gosh, if it came about, we weren't quite ready to open up in that city, but this brewery is struggling and we can take over their operations. Is that, are these conversations you guys have had? 
We we have not had those conversations. Um, and I think that you're right, that is gonna be um a lot more common. We have had people approach us um a lot more uh interest in knowing if we're interested in doing exactly what you just described. I think from from our brand perspective, we are so hyper focused on our plan, which we think um makes a lot of sense that you know we don't want to be distracted by sort of the the shiny opportunities that might just be right over the horizon it's going to take away from what we're trying to do i mean that said i think there are a lot of other breweries similar to us maybe um with a different brand intention and um and strategy that will be extremely well positioned to do that and can inject cash and use their marketing and their sales know-how and their distributor relationships to immediately either save a brand or to take a, a small brand and do bigger things with it. Um, you know, there's been um, a few brand consolidations recently. I'm trying to think of the name. I think a brewery out of New Jersey called River Horse, which has been around for 20 plus years, bought a brewery out of Maryland called Dewclaw. And they're doing just that. I think that you you also run into uh, an interesting phenomenon in the craft beer space where most craft breweries are less than 15 years old. Actually, they're probably less than 10 years old. And so you have the owner founders that are approaching these milestones, or maybe the business plan hasn't worked out exactly as they saw fit or, or as they put on paper. And you know, are, are thinking about whether or not they still want to devote the time and energy required to generate a return, maybe get a small paycheck versus what the original business plan was. And for, you know, to be able to sell the business while it's still viable um, is a lot better than just kind of coming in, turning on the lights and hoping that things are going to turn around, you know, more often than not, that doesn't happen unless there's an injection of money or there's, um, you know, a marketing change or something like that. Yeah. All right. So final question for you, and maybe you guys haven't even had this conversation, but if, if you hadn't, um, I would just encourage you to have it. But uh, do you know what John's intention is for the long-term outlook of the business? I don't, I don't know that we've discussed, you know, difference in age or, you know, you know, how old John is, how much longer he wants to do this. Does he have kids that want to come into the business is the plan for Jim to take over at least a portion of the business. Have you guys had that conversation? Is it something you're willing to discuss? Yeah, definitely willing to discuss it. He, um, he's, he's been pretty open about it even from day one. Uh, he has no intention of selling the business because he's having too much fun for one. And if he sold it, then he'd have to figure out how to occupy his time. And he doesn't know what that would be because he likes having a, a beer that he makes. And so he's, he's very much involved. Um, and the transition from sort of doing everything into the visionary role, I think, has been very satisfying for him, too. Um, and I think, it, you know, if he has a family and if um, someone wants to join the business, I think that'd be tremendously gratifying to him. Um, and, you know, from an age perspective, we're, we're fairly close. Um, you know, I'm in my mid forties and his, uh, he's in his fifties. So, uh, it doesn't feel like it's very different, um, as of right now, I think that, um, I, my goal is to essentially prove to myself and to John that we can really grow this business the way that he envisioned it. And then I think that the opportunities as far as expanded role or oversight or ownership or whatever it might be, those things will come naturally. Uh, in my mind, it's 
it's too early to force a conversation before the major um, projects and the, the major initiatives have come and have yielded some kind of results because otherwise you know he's taking a risk hiring me um, and introducing more expense to his bottom line and the full benefit of my role or uh, any any person that sits in a role like what I'm doing I think takes a little bit of time and then once I once that starts to pay off it becomes clear whether or not you know does he want to keep me or does he want to try something differently does he want to retain me which would be you know a couple different options too so we're not there yet i'm not in a big rush um and he's always been so transparent that i feel like when we get to that step it'll be kind of a natural discussion about you know what does he need and what do, what do i need yeah so i think i know the answer to this but are you having fun you enjoying where, where you are i absolutely love it um it's been a lot of work but it's um it's very satisfying. I I love drinking German beer, <laughs> and uh, and I and we have a great team, so it makes my life um, easy. And um, you know, I, I can't imagine really doing anything else right now. Yeah. All right. So for those who are listening and are going to be visiting North and South Carolina, what's the best way to get in touch with the company itself or with you if they have any questions about what it is that you guys are doing? Um, yeah, the company. So visit us at ombbeer.com. Um, that's our website. And we're going to be enhancing that for the multiple locations over the coming months. Our social media handles is uh, Old Mech Brew. And uh, I'm always happy to chat with uh, folks that are uh, thinking about changing careers or have. And um, best way for me is probably on LinkedIn. Yeah, we didn't. I mean, I don't know that we gave that portion of it justice, to be honest with you, Jim. And, and that's the fact that you were in a job that was great, made good money. You, you know, you were trained, but you you made a choice to go after your passion instead and made a career out of it. And I, I think that that could speak to a different, a completely different audience. I'm sure there are podcasts that speak to just that. Right. I mean, the fact that that somebody is, I know so many friends that are miserable attorneys, right? I mean, they just, they cannot stand their life as attorneys, but they make really great money and it affords them to be able to do other things. And your your situation was similar, but I don't know that you were necessarily, you know, really unhappy, but you weren't able to pursue what you were really passionate about. And now you've been able to do that. And so, you know, Anybody who's listening, definitely take Jim up on that opportunity to talk to him about how he did that and why and, and what it's meant to him personally to be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. And from a financial perspective, um, it may hurt in the short term, but in the long run, if uh, if it's something more fulfilling, it, it really is, um, you know, a, a, a great thing to do, I think. Yeah. Well, Jim, I really appreciate the perspective. I love the story. Um, you know, bond ratings are important, right? They're specifically <laughs> in my industry. They are important. We have to know uh, how they're rated and, and trust, you know, what it is that uh, that we're buying for our clients. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean that it's important enough for Jim to do it as his full-time job for the rest of his life. And I applaud you for taking that step. <laughs> Thanks very much, Austin. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here, Jim. Really appreciated the conversation. Same here.
You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon. And be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.